guys, today we have Luana Moroja, who's an associate professor of biology at Williams College. Join us for our talk on her wild life growing up in Brazil, developing a meat allergy after getting bitten by a tick, some research on speciation, and a little more. I was I was stolen by the police in Brazil several times. Like yeah, like walking home, a policeman would catch me and take me to a corner and and like search if I had drugs or what not. One time I was carrying in Brazil. I won't, I was I was robbed seriously robbed many times in Brazil, like guns in my head and all this. And there was one yeah, one time this woman beat me up in a supermarket over was she was stealing my money. Uh, my mother bought me a pepper spray that I needed to walk. So I, I started walking with this pepper spray and the policeman stopped me and stole my pepper spray. <laughs> stole it. <laughs> like, we're going to keep this. Now you can go. And, and <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious, but also really sad. Oh, I know. Like, there was, in Brazil, the policeman does not need a reason to stop you. They can stop you anytime. It's like the, the stop and frisk anytime. So walking at night, you are a suspect, you get stopped. And, you know, it's it's a cars. They, they block the road and they will stop every single car. And they want bribes. I mean, I bribed the policeman so many times in Brazil. In Panama. <laughs> like, like, it was like... They, they even ask, like, oh, we need some money for coffee. For our, they call it coffee. <laughs> and then you bribe them and you're free. But it's not that you did anything wrong, but they will find something. They will plant something in your car. So you don't want to mess with them. And here in the US, I never experienced that. So, you know, I'm, I, I, I can say that I have moved to a much better police force than what I was used to. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that is so wild. I can't get the image of like a lady just beating you up in the supermarket over your money. Yeah, yeah, no, it was horrible. They, she, it was a woman too. She threw me against a bunch of cans and then the cans fell down. And then eventually the security came running and yeah. Did they help you? Did they, were they effective? Yeah, they, they were, they were. I didn't get my money back because the person ran away, but that's <laughs> What was the last straw? What made you move move away? I moved away to the U.S. in 2001. Uh, so I came to grad school. Um, I was 23, I think. Yeah. Besides the the safety aspect, did you have any culture shocks that? There were several. Like, and and it, it the first one is honesty. Like people here are so honest. I I lost my wallet. I had three hundred dollars, and uh, I thought I had lost it. They called me and all the money was there. I couldn't believe <laughs> they came in. Nobody stole my money. It was right there. You know, so that was a big shock. I mean, there is zero chance that in Brazil you would lose $300 and actually get it back. Zero chance. Impossible. The other thing that was a shock to me was how people donate money to charities. Like in Brazil, that doesn't exist at all there is no such a thing because you can't trust anyone so you know the idea that you would give money to someone they will just keep the money for themselves you know there is no no trust and the uh, the other thing that was shocking is the uh, in my 
my college in Brazil was very, very violent. It had a lot of homeless people. I've been robbed on knife point, gunpoint, all in going to college, back to college. Like uh, there were all these stray dogs and cats, homeless people. There were these, uh, there were rapes from homeless on students that were common. Thankfully, I escaped that. Uh, And we would hitchhike home because there was no transportation. So we would stand on the street hitchhiking. And there was always a bunch of us. And that was another weird thing, right? I had the guys uh, showing me their dick in the the ride. I had many stories, many stories. And when I first moved to Cornell, I was with these counselors. They put all the, the international students with these counselors, and I and and I didn't have a car. And you know, it was hard to move around because the bus schedule was erratic. It was like very few a day because small town it was in Cornell. And I said, "Well, can I hitchhike to the mall?" It's like, "No, do not." <laughs> Concern about safety and all these things is very high here and, and much, yeah. uh, much lower there. And and you know, and then the the uh, oh, you can trust people like you. Oh, the honor code was another surprise to me. I mean, people cheated in Brazil like you wouldn't imagine. Like everyone cheated. Like, <laughs> Did the professors know that the students were cheating? Uh, yeah, they always knew, but they 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 would try to catch. <laughs> You know, it was sometimes one would be caught, but yeah, they knew it was going on. Some of them just pretend they didn't see it. I remember in uh, in college, we're taking a protest course, like invertebrates 101 in biology. And I had a friend that came to me just before the exam. It's like, I know nothing. Please help me. Please help me. I was like, fine. So I was going to help him, right? So I... I sat and I was writing with big letters so he could see and he could see behind me. And uh, he's like standing up to try to read over my shoulder. And the professor came straight in our direction. She looked at me and said, be careful. That student is going to fall asleep on your shoulder. And then he didn't do anything else. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, I know. And uh, it's also very different because in Brazil, the grades are never comparative. You get what you get. So if the highest grade in the classroom is 70%, nobody gets an A. There is no ladder grade. 70% is your grade, period. So I had had one class I took was chemistry. um, And I had the second, there were 60 students, 58 failed. I passed with... 55%. 55%. Oh my God. And that was my GPA forever. 55. 55%. It lowered my GPA for a lifetime. But I was only one of two out of 60 that passed. And, and because there was so many, some students complained and it disappeared from their, from their uh, transcript. But for me, it stayed forever because I passed. That's so funny how, like, the students that failed got a better outcome than yeah, I know. I wish I had failed that one. 
Nobody learned anything. I mean, I didn't learn anything anyway. <laughs> no, I'm surprised so many people failed when, you know, you know, if they cheat, I imagine they might pass better. <laughs> no, but it was so, this class, they, it was, the professor was from France and you couldn't understand anything. He had an accent that was so high that you couldn't understand anything. He didn't have a book. So there was no sources. You couldn't learn anything. Oh, it's like, it was like completely random what you would get. <laughs> The other guy that passed the course was a transfer from chemistry. So he, he had been a chem major and he had transferred to biology and had to take the class again. That's why he passed. <laughs> and, and I barely passed. I just like... <laughs> I mean, when you're teaching and you think about, you know, your past experiences, do you want to, do you feel like you're being too lenient sometimes or... Uh, too lenient here with uh, with students? Yeah. What do you mean by too lenient? Like, you know, when you curve up your... Oh, I see, I see. Uh, definitely, like, it's definitely uh, easier to get a higher grade here than it was uh, in my college, because <laughs> it was, you know, an A is 100%, basically. You know, an A is a high grade, whereas... Um, I... I think it's fine though. I, I, I like the, the system here better. I think it's more reflecting on the student rather than on some arbitrary thing. I mean, now, of course, the problem is that if you are curving and you have a class where everybody is strong or everybody is weak, your outcome could be very different because it's a little comparative. Right. So, and that's another thing that makes cheating here very different than cheating in Brazil, right? Because if it's comparable and you're helping someone else by giving answers to them, you're actually sinking yourself and everybody else. <laughs> so <laughs> it changes the dynamics a bit. I don't know if students think about that when they decide to help like the other students. <laughs> I, 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 maybe not, but yeah. uh, there is definitely that aspect. And other people in the classroom could be more pissed up with uh, with cheating here because if they think a little bit about it, their grade is coming down as other right. students cheat. Uh, and I think that there is definitely a um, moral... I think most students here don't approve of other students cheating and they will actually turn students in if they see them cheating. Not everybody, but some. Uh, whereas in Brazil, it never happens. Like, you never I, turn someone in. <laughs> objectively, that's probably what you should do. Mm -hmm. But in my high school or middle school, like, that just didn't really happen. Yeah, yeah. So kind of you know, surprising. I mean, not that cheating was, like, so common, but it's just, yeah. like, if you know someone cheated, you just, just turn away. <laughs> no, and, and here is also, like, one time I had a student that saw someone else cheating. She came talk to me, but she didn't want me to tell that it was her. So she wanted to do, like, an anonymous thing, and then in the end for it to come through, she would have to talk to the honor committee, and she didn't want to do that. And and you know, in the end, she pretended that nothing happened. So, oh. <laughs> in okay. the end, she didn't want to. She didn't want to be known as the one that turned someone else in. Like, right, right. Well, they about that. Is the honor committee like you just you go to the profs that are on the board, and then you just kind of explain what happened? 
I had several honor K honor revival. I had some gruesome ones like, in, in genetics in my large course. Um, and uh, it's a large class, like 100 students or close to 100 students. Uh, and pretty much every year there has been some honor code violation, usually copying answer keys from previous years or something oh. like that. Um, but uh, basically if I find something, sometimes the TAs find something, sometimes I find something, you bring it to the honor committee and then it's out of your hands. Then the only thing I have to do is to go to the trial date, which is incredibly uncomfortable. I hate it. Um, you know, and the other, the other call talks to the students. The student comes with some kind of a defense or a cause or, or a confession or whatnot. Um, and then uh, questions and answers. And I can say if I know something else or have some other evidence and that's that's that. I mean, do you feel awkward around those students when you see them again? Yeah, I feel very awkward. Like I have had one that 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 did and he confessed right away and he said that that was the best thing that happened to him because he didn't realize how bad it was the uh, thing that he was doing and he had to do his classes and it was a wake up call. So that one was great, you know, it was like, and then others, the ones that didn't confess, I had another one that kept intimidating me. He was a big, big football player and uh, he kept entering my class and making noises and throwing things on the floor and then walking out and I was like, he's intimidating me. <laughs> and that one I, I avoided, like even from far away, I, I would like walk in another direction. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure with your experiences in Brazil, you can take him. You can take him. Off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was reading about you know the indigenous like uncontacted or indigenous people living in. I think they have some in Brazil actually. Yeah, in the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, India, I think the scent, I forget what it's called, actually, the name of the people. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if they're separated enough, could that lead to, like, speciation in human species? If enough time, yes, definitely. I mean, it's hard to keep humans so close down. I mean, the people that have been isolated for the longest, I think, was uh, Native Australians. Because they migrated and there was basically no contact with the rest of the world for a long time, um, basically 50,000 years. And, and if you look at the various, uh, you know, the populations do develop their own unique adaptations, shapes, etc. Uh, and with the lack of gene flow, if we hadn't started mating with them, there would eventually they would eventually uh, be its own species. I mean... You know, at some point, there were many species of humans walking around. I mean, we, we caused the extinction of many. So. I mean, I don't know if you or biologists would know the answer yet, but what what specific changes would it take yeah, to so cause it? That is the million-dollar question, right? Like, what are the genetic changes that actually cause reproductive isolation? And how can these changes happen inside the population without making the first the first person that has a mutation cannot be reproductively isolated with the rest. So you have to come with a genetic scenario 
where uh, the mutations do not lead to instant reproductive isolation, where otherwise how could that spread? Mm -hmm. um, so what they assume is that mutations are happening in one population, they are isolated, right? That's the easiest model. You have one population isolated, another population isolated. Mutations are happening in both populations, and those mutations are fine within each population, but the new mutations are incompatible with each other, such that if the populations come back together, the hybrid offspring would be inviable or sterile or something like that. So that's that's one way. It's a it's a famous model called Dobzhensky Mueller model. Another way would be like through sexual selection, for example, that uh, you start to develop unique preferences within one population, another population, uh, and eventually individuals do not recognize the other species as mates anymore. Kind of like we don't recognize chimps as mates, right? Completely <laughs> compatible. I don't think there would be hybrids. And we are not, by the way. Like they did try this experiment. The, oh. the Russians tried over and over and it failed miserably. So, what? yeah, they had grants to produce human chimp hybrids to create an army of hybrid humans that would be stronger and more obedient. What? That is so wild. Oh yeah. my god. Wait, how recent was this? Was this a long time ago or this was well was in the thirties, I think. Wow. I mean that's sick at it as it is, you know I mean you gotta respect their imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and they were trying like male humans of course on chimps and with artificial insemination, right? <laughs> Not <laughs> They were like all these captive chimps and they would inseminate and they never got pregnant. Um, then they then they, they transferred some males, male uh, chimps and orangutans, I think gorillas and orangutans, to uh, Russia and they got a few females to try to be impregnated by their sperm. It also failed. So that was it. They tried in both directions. It failed. Oh Besides, like, the mental trauma of that, is there any, like, other, you know, damage the body that can cause? I don't know. I mean, I, it was all artificial insemination, right? So injections. At the time, there was no in vitro fertilization. So it was like injecting sperm on a fertile female chimp, and, and that never resulted in pregnancies. And they tried several times with several females, never resulted in pregnancy. And with the human, I mean, I think the human were convinced to to help the uh, the country and to help the cause, and, and uh, they volunteered. They weren't forced. They actually volunteered. Oh. The human female. So I mean, <laughs> well, they volunteered, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know, like how volunteering was the volunteering, but you know. <laughs> I'm glad that it was not biologically possible because yeah. I had recursions of potential hybrid that, you know, would be not a human, not a chimp. That would be traumatic for that individual, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was just curious about your opinion on, you know, these kind of gruesome and it seems immoral, like, tests. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think some mm -hmm. people think that they're necessary for progression like faster progression but 
you know, other people will disagree that, you know, because it's, it's inhumane to conduct like those kinds you, of... You talk, like, uh, what, do you have in mind something, like, for example, the human cloning, like the... the yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the genetic modification, human GMO, humans. Um, well, even, like, I think CRISPR... Yeah, the, the, the CRISPR babies. They're born already. They, they must be, like, two now. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, there were two babies, two twins, um, not identical to twins, like uh, in China. They survived. They are CRISPR. They have ge- the genetic modification. And the genetic modification is for resistance to HIV. Oh, um, yes. I read yeah. about The father was positive for HIV, and uh, the parents volunteered and wanted this change and uh, they did the change and in one twin it worked in the other one i don't think it did and it has a, a, another modification they're mm-hmm. both fine and uh you know we don't know who they are luckily because i don't think that would be well in school like you are a genetically modified kid <laughs> <laughs> and the scientist who did that is in jail i believe like oh. he got into big trouble oh wow he did it without permits, and he thought he was a hero. He he thought he actually went to a conference and announced that publicly, and he was expecting expected to be acclaimed as a hero. But instead, uh-huh. people couldn't believe. Right? People were, "What did you do? Why are you done?" <laughs> Consequentially, it did achieve a feat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Putting people's lives in risk, right? It's like that. The thing is. There was no need to jump into a human now that the technology is not quite good. And that genetic change is, is, I mean, who cares if the father has HIV? It's basically impossible that the embryos would get HIV because it's in vitro fertilization. There was no chance. So the, the modification didn't serve any purpose other than proving that it could be done. Um, okay. So what? They are HIV resistant. I mean, the chances that they will actually get infected and that will save their lives is infinitesimally small, right? I mean, right. HIV is very much under control. There's no need for that. Yeah. Uh, do biologists or do scientists still take the information from these studies? Like, for example, if we deem like a human cloning kind of study immoral or inhumane, would we still look into the results and try to build off of that? I would say it has been done. If it has been done and the data is there and it could help with something else, avoiding the uh, the negative outcome, I would hope that that they would look and learn from it, right? I think that there are experiments that are immoral and we should never repeat them, but if the data is there, there is no reason to throw away the data because the thing is now considered immoral, right? I mean, I, you know, there were so many experiments where they did horrible things like uh, purposefully infecting people with a number of diseases to see what the outcome of the disease was. And that's terrible and that should never be repeated. But on the other hand, if that data helps you understand the progression of the disease and how to cure it, it would be immoral not to use it. You know, if, if it will help you solve a problem, then you should use it if it's available. You know, there are, and then there are, there are things that 
are risky, right? Nowadays, for example, they are releasing modified mosquitoes in all places in the world. They're going to start in Florida to uh, mosquitoes that are not capable of getting malaria or other things like that to have modifications that allow them not to transmit diseases. Wow. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing that success. They did a lot of trials in Brazil. Brazil has been the main and uh, it, it works. I mean, it's, it, it reduces the, uh, the amount of like dengue. Um, there are some modifications that are easy to do and you can engineer them such that they spread through the population. Mosquitoes that have the modification have an advantage. So it's naturally, it's naturally selected for and reduce the, uh, the, the virus, like different ones serve different purposes and it's effective. The risk is you're introducing a new thing in nature and you don't quite know how it's going to turn around. And, right. you, know, it's, you know, so some people are afraid of that, but on the other hand, you know, you, you really help people. So should you do that or not? Well, is the hope that this new breed of mosquitoes will overtake the existing? Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope. And they release only males that have the, wow. the modification. They're not increasing the density of biting. Only females bite, right? So biting mosquitoes are not increasing. Uh, and there are some that the males have a kill element that all the offspring from that male is, are dead. So they, uh, they release thousands of males made with the females, and then the females lay eggs that don't hatch. Um, and with that, the population crashes. So that's one approach. The other approach is to put mosquitoes that are unable of being carriers of particular viruses or particular diseases. So that's another approach. That doesn't, the mosquito population is left intact and they just become not able to transmit. So there are many approaches and some of those are successful, you know, and the, the risk is that you release one of these mosquitoes and of course, natural selection might make females able to avoid mating with those males or resistance to whatever the males are carrying that kills the offspring. So, you know, and some people argue that that is uh, unethical, that, you know, we don't know what would happen, so it could be unethical to do these kinds of experiments. I see. I mean, what are the possible, like, consequences besides the fact that it might be ineffective? But I don't really know if mosquitoes are just like the pests of <laughs> so i don't really see like what exactly the harm would be in like you know I, you know in terms of mosquitoes i'm more or less with you i think that the risks are that uh the mosquito could evolve to avoid these genetic engineered things to kill them but that only brings us to the beginning points, to where we were before. You know, it does not. Some news source, if you look around, some news source will say that super mosquitoes will then evolve. That's not a super mosquito. That's <laughs> like any other. You know, so there is like this hype going around that um, if we do that, we're gonna mess with the mosquitoes and we're actually gonna create bioweapons or something. <laughs> That's not the case. I think that the worst case scenario is that it fails and we go back to stage zero. Eh, it's not too bad. So yeah. I would say that those, those experiments are worth doing it because the benefits are very high and the risks are relatively low. You could be 
messing up with the genetic composition of the mosquito population because you introduce mosquitoes with another genetic background, but so what? It's like I mosquitoes see. have been introduced all over the world and we have messed up with their genetic composition already, so. Mm-hmm. Have you yeah. seen um, the news that the giant hornets? Yeah, I saw it. Oh my god! <laughs> the likelihood that I'll see one is not very high, <laughs> but it was kind of terrifying. <laughs> it, it is. And then have you seen like how the, it attacks the bees, and the bees have the defense mechanism, which is the coolest thing. So the bees actually, because it can destroy a beehive in no time. Those mm-hmm. things eat honey, and they eat larva, and they can destroy beehives. So the bees, where that hornet is native, mm-hmm. Japan and, uh, and parts of Asia, they, when they detect uh, one of those super things coming into their hives, they go around them and they form a ball and they increase the temperature. Oh, yeah, and they cook the thing alive. It's amazing. Oh, so crazy. Do you know if these hornets travel in groups? I think they travel solitary, but they go back. They're, they're kind of like a bee themselves, right? So they go back and they communicate to the hive. So when they find one, that one is going to go back and tell where the colony is. So then a bunch of them will come and, and destroy the hive in a, one night. Uh, but if that one is destroyed, then there's a chance that they will not be detected. So uh, that's what the bees do. Is that defense mechanism unique for those wasps or those hornets? Or is it something that bees in the U.S. do? Bees in the U.S. don't have that. So, you know, like, yeah, they don't have that. So if they are very um, susceptible to the predation by these things, they could be decimated. So they need to really make sure that this super hornet's not spreading because that would be uh, deadly. Or they need to start importing genes from those populations that all of them go in. Do you know how, how it came to the U.S.? I don't, but insects are tricky, right? It's so easy to introduce them. I mean, left and right, we have had these invasions of this and that. The, the longhorn beetles were a big one when a few years ago. And oh. The emerald beetle is another. They threaten trees usually, but, you know, there's a tick now, a newly introduced tick that each female will lay 3,000 eggs. So how can you... Oh, my God. This is impossible. Yeah, so we are we're gonna get more ticks around. <laughs> are the ones that carry Lyme disease um, a different species, or is it just some carry Lyme disease? Yeah, well, there are many species of ticks, and one species, I think, the deer tick is the one that is more likely to transmit Lyme disease. But then there are other diseases. I actually have a tick born thing that is a weird one that gives me allergy to uh, mammals i cannot eat cow or pig or because of a tick it's not a it's a weird thing it's not a, a parasite it's not a, a virus or a parasite the tick makes triggers an immune reaction so i think what happens is that the tick injects you because when they put the thing, they inject you with deer blood. And then your body basically mounts an immune response to deer blood, and you become allergic to mammals. 
Um, and it's a single protein, it's a single carbohydrate, actually, that primates like monkeys don't have. So we don't have it, mm -hmm. uh, but deer have it. So when you are exposed to that because of a tick, your body reacts to it as if you got a vaccine, right? And now you, you are allergic to the thing because you mount an immune reaction. And uh, I was the second person in Williamstown to get this damn thing. <laughs> they took forever to find out. And I was exposed sick. And I didn't, it took me a long time to realize that every time I ate red meat, I would get very sick because it happens five or six hours later. So it never clicked. It took me so long, like three months. I, I thought I had like an ulcer. I thought I had like an Oh my goodness. I can't believe this because I've only heard about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very common in the South and it's, it's because the South has this lone star tick mm -hmm. that is very good at transmitting this thing, at inoculating you or something. Uh, and it's now spreading. The, this tick is now coming up with climate change and, and changes in the landscape. It's coming up. Uh, so I don't know if I was beaten by, I know I was beaten by a tick. I don't know if it was that tick or not, because I didn't save it. I just took it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How has that transition been? Like, I can't even imagine not eating. Yeah, no, it's a pain. It's a pain. Uh, now that I know it's much better, because as I said, I was getting really sick. Um, mm -hmm. And I can still eat fish and chicken. So it's not that bad. Okay. You know, yeah, it's just mammals. So I avoid mammals. <laughs> wow, that is fascinating. Does your family eat red meat too? They can eat red meat. I mean, we kind of stopped buying because, you know, it's a pain yeah. to make good things. But yeah, they can eat it. If they go to restaurants, that's when they eat it, right? Okay, okay. Wow, yeah. that is so insane. Yeah, it's it's completely. I mean, you're kind of like a celebrity in my head right now because. <laughs> yeah, I got so much crap. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, when I first read the um, I think I read an article about that tick. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a few years ago, maybe like a year ago. But... Yeah, it became very popular. If it, I I got it before it was popular, so that's why I knew it. And then it became super popular. Like, ah, if it was just popular a year ago, then I would immediately have recognized, but no. <laughs> wow, well, yeah, but I think I read it in some like sketchy like magazine online. Like, this is definitely fake. I was like, this is not real. Wow. Do you know who the first person in Williamstown to get it? Yeah, I actually met him. He's an alum. And he lives oh. in, and he's he's very old. He's retired. He's a doctor, uh, an ex doctor, like a retired doctor. And um, and he got, he recognized what it was faster than I did. We got it almost at the same time. The tick bites, our tick bites were like a week apart. Oh wow! He discovered after the third time he ate meat. Whereas for me, it took like a lifetime. It took like discovered. <laughs> Uh, and and he had a symptom that I never that I never did. He had rashes in addition to stomach pain. He mm -hmm. had rashes on his leg, so that kind of signals allergy. Mm -hmm. Like I did not have rashes, and I don't have rashes. I I just 
bad with stomach pain that I throw up and, and all these things, but I don't have rashes. If I had rashes, it would have been faster, I think. But I'm sure people want to find out more about the tick, or I mean, I don't know if they've already exhausted the the studies but i mean do they ever reach out to you or do you ever want to find out if it was that uh, they haven't I, I mean i did blood tests and i i know i have the antibodies against the uh thing so i, I know for sure I, that that's what it is but no doctor has asked me to be a, a patient for a trial <laughs> i know that my allergist did report me as a case so that they can track the thing but that's that's it yeah so I got a phone call from, uh, like they sent me one of these, um, what's the name, the thing for allergy, like the injection for allergy, like if you're having like a symptom, you're oh, self Yeah, the EpiPen. And they called me about that and they put me in some national database, but that was it. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that just injecting some like other animal's blood could cause yeah no that is and it's not i don't think it's simply injecting the other animal's blood i think it's also there is some kind of coadjuvant that the tick passes to you that makes the makes your body react more strongly i think that the tick helps because i think any tick could inject you with blood even a flea or anything right but um there is something in particular about these tick species that make it more likely to happen, I think. Well, that's the worst combination. Yeah. Like, <laughs> evolve together, I don't know. <laughs> the worst is that it's very common in Texas where people eat a, ro- a lot of red meat. <laughs> <laughs> that must cause an outrage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, like, as, as much as you hate it, you kind of do gain, like, a kind of appreciation for how these things happen. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah. Do they say potential in like, I mean, actually, I don't know. Is there any case where you want to develop an allergy for something? Like against something? I can't think of anything. <laughs> I mean, there are cases where you definitely want to develop antibodies, right? Okay. Uh, like, like an allergy to the flu is, you know, <laughs> immune defense against the flu, right? Having antibodies and whatnot, but you know, that's different. Diseases is one thing, like, mm-hmm. but, yeah. If this gets big enough, then you know the movement to not eat red meat or cow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It could speed up. <laughs> And in fact, like uh, a few years ago, we had this uh, these talks on environment and uh, climate change. And one of the guys that came was suggesting infecting everybody with this thing <laughs> so that nobody would want to eat meat anymore and you stop it. <laughs> um, no, I'd be, I would, I would, I will say no. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried like the fake... Uh, what do you call those? The the yeah the uh, what's the impossible burger? <laughs> I did try all of them. Yeah, they they're good. They're good. Yeah, I don't think it's a full replacement, but it's definitely it's a good burger. Like the impossible burger. I where where have you where have you tried it? They actually used it to serve that in the Williams Inn before they closed down. The restaurant had it. Oh. 
That I was good. Better than, it's better than the Lee's, like, vegetarian burger, probably. Yeah, it is better. It, <laughs> they try to mimic the texture of meat, and, and they do a good job with that. It's not a... Per- I think the taste is a little off, but uh-huh. the, the texture... You know, when you bite on it, it, it looks like it's bleeding, right? It looks like it's, a, it's an actual meat piece. I see. So... I tried uh I tried the Dunkin' the Dunkin' Donuts Impossible Breakfast Burger. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I swear it's like when I first ate it, I was like, okay, like this can pass, but I did not feel good after. <laughs> That's something oh, okay. <laughs> I do yeah. not recommend. Donuts, you know? <laughs> the, um, the Burger King one is pretty good. I was out with a friend to try to you know, try all the fake meat, the fake uh-huh, burgers uh-huh. to see which one's the best. <laughs> I mean, I think among the fast food, they're all pretty similar, but I think, have you tried Umami Burger? I have not. If no. you ever go out of town um, to like a city area, <laughs> then um, you should try Umami Burger. Their Impossible Burger tastes exactly like meat. Huh. Yeah. I'll try that. So I highly recommend when the restaurants reopen, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people just going out right now at this point, so I think it'll be fine. Oh, I agree. I mean, and if with all the protests, if we don't see a big spike in coronavirus in two weeks, I think we're safe to fully reopen. You know, it's like <laughs> please, you know, everybody was close together. You know, if that didn't increase, then nothing will. Just open it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I do have three questions that I want to ask at the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So the first question is, um, what's the most common misconception in your field of study? I think, I think that the word evolution per se is fairly misunderstood. And not getting into the details like what genetic changes cause speciation, because obviously most people have not thought about that and we don't really know. Um, But like the way that people apply evolution to humans, um, you know, a lot of people will say humans are not evolving anymore, uh, which is a misconception. Um, There are many, many misconceptions about evolution as it's applied to humans in particular. Uh, of course, we are evolving. I mean, evol- evolution just means change through time. So you have a particular genetic composition in the population. If that changes, we are evolving. And of course, that's changing. I mean, change is it's in- inevitable because you have, even if you don't have natural selection leading to particular outcomes, um, you change just based through drift, through through uh, random changes. Like the populations are always evolving. There is no such thing as a non-evolving population. That's really hard to, perhaps in lab under some strict conditions under very short terms, but that's really hard. Um, so that's one. Uh, I, the whole thing, like how people see humans as an exceptional species in which evolutionary concepts do not apply is uh, is another common misconception. And then you have a number of sm- smaller things, right? Like how to interpret particular things or um, phylogenetic trees. And, and there's a number like, are we uh, 
a common one, a very common one, is that chimps are our ancestors. Uh-huh. They tend to be our ancestors because they are alive today, right? <laughs> they are alive today cannot be someone else's ancestors. So clearly not. We have an ancestor. They're kind of like our cousins. We have an ancestor in common with them, but they're not our direct ancestors. So that's another thing. And you hear like creationists say, if chimps are our ancestors, how come they are still alive? Like, well, they are not. <laughs> Actually, I've seen a lot of Facebook posts that say if chimps are like, you know, yeah, exactly, our ancestors, how are they still alive today? Or why aren't they evolved? They are in our ancestors. <laughs> Oh, actually, have you seen the picture of the chimp using a spear to fish in the river? No, I have not seen that. Huh. So crazy. I wonder if I could find it. But... Oh, wow. Yeah, it's an orangutan. That's amazing. Huh. I mean, you know, when you see pictures like that, it's like simultaneously like awe, but fear. I don't know. There's like weird fear for some reason. <laughs> well, it, it takes a little bit away of our exclusivity, right? We're, we're not, I mean, a lot of the traits that we consider humans actually have been shown to exist in many other species. So the ability to, em- to empathize, for example, um, mm-hmm. or, or to respond to stress calls of other individuals, I mean, even rats will will try to save companions that are in distress um Um, you know so you know and every time these things come people say oh no only humans can empathize but that clearly isn't the case i mean all these things have been present you know and, and our ancestry like all the way to the first primates have been group individuals and we do a lot of altruism and monkeys do a lot of altruism, and it's reciprocal, right? So you do stick for tat. You do something good for someone, you are expecting that they will do something good for you in the future. And if they don't, then you punish them. So this punishment is present throughout the species, and we clearly inherit that big time, right? We want to punish those that did wrong. Um, and clearly, we have been... There was like a strong history of selection such that, you know, people don't want to do wrong, right? And we have a very high fear of being rejected by our social group because in the past, being rejected by your social group would mean death. Right. You know, know, people conform to what the social group norm is because if they don't, they could be cast off and die. You know, it's like... So all these things, you you see that kind of uh, behavior in other species as well. So um, humans are unique, but not as unique as we think we are. <laughs> what what does make humans unique compared to more intelligent animals? Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think our what really make us unique is that we are. We are very, very social, more so than an average social species. So we can help others and we can, obviously our ability to communicate is unsurpassed, right? We, we have developed a rich vocabulary in many ways of communicating many things, including feelings and things that are not immediate. So I think that makes us quite unique. Um, but the basic feelings that we have, the basic emotions and feelings are not unique to us. I mean, we, we just have a layer of... Uh, communication and uh, collaboration that is much more developed than others, I would say. I see. Um, 
Is there, is there any change in the recent generation of humans that we might not know about? I know one of them is you don't have like wisdom teeth or something. <laughs> <laughs> some people, are, yeah, some people are not getting. But but it it this is nothing new. I mean this this was already uh, the, the population wisdom teeth were to replace lost teeth. Right, because as you were growing up, you would have a bunch of loose teeth. The wisdom teeth would push the ones in and replace a lost one. Oh. We don't have that problem anymore. People that don't have wisdom teeth are not at a lower fitness because they don't have wisdom teeth. My mother actually doesn't. Um, so, <laughs> but they're not at any detriment. So selection is relaxed, right? So if you don't grow your wisdom teeth, it's not a problem. You didn't lose anything anyway. It's probably better. You don't have to extract them, right? But it makes no difference in whether you reproduce or not. Um, so it's a relaxed trait. And when you have like this lack of selection, then the, then what you usually find is that some individuals have it, some don't, and it doesn't make any difference. Um, but, you know, we our generation time is so long and, you know, 10 generations or so is more than 200 years and we don't, there is no difference between us now versus someone that was 200 years, 500 years ago, other than culture. Of course, we learned a tone the last 500 yeah. years. But in terms of biology, there's no difference, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. If, if we were born, if one of us was born 500 years ago, we would acquire the culture and the, and the morality of 500 years ago. We would not be current, right? And the I same, if we could bring back someone from five years ago, 500 years ago, they would acquire our language, morality, etc., which has changed dramatically in the past 500 years. Wait, I forget that 500 years is the 1500s. Yeah, like, yeah. So much more, like, far away. Yeah, and it's like, it needs so much change, you know, what was yeah. morally acceptable back then, slavery was morally acceptable back then, yeah. and, and it's not. I mean, torturing animals was morally acceptable and, and done for fun. They would like to throw cats in the fireplace and oh. watch them burn. Yeah, like it was a common entertainment in medieval Europe. Um, and that now is just, you cannot even think of that as being fun. You know, it's like, yeah. That's scary because torturing animals like that is like a sign that you're like a sociopath or something. Right, right, right. But the idea that animals can feel pain and that they're not simply objects is, is relatively new. Wow. I mean, it's like people just didn't care about animals at the time. And, and not even other people, right? Punishments for criminals were horrendous, like the gutting. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, and, you know, I'm against the death penalty. I don't think we should hurt other people. You know, I think we should treat even criminals with, with a very humane way. But, um, Especially, yeah. like, if you consider, I mean, we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, but mm -hmm. if you're considering your stance on, you know, free will, it seems really in really awful to put them through the death penalty or punish them for something perhaps that they had no control know. yeah yeah that their life circumstances just happened to be that way and that's what they did and you should definitely not make their lives worse by by uh yeah. 
some horrible punishment. Hey guys, so quick interruption. So, I'm referencing the previous episode that Luana and I recorded, which we couldn't use due to audio distortions, but I did include a clip of her quickly explaining her stance on free will in the last episode. Um, The audio does get a little disordered at the end, so watch out for that. But I tried to fix it as much as possible, but uh, this is the best I can do. Um, Yeah. I do think we have some agency, but it's not free. I mean, to say free is, is, is an extrapolation, right? It's certainly <laughs> not free. It's incredibly constrained. But I think that one thing that is important to, to teach people is that, you know, you you can be in charge of your life to a, to a large degree, right? You can choose what you eat. You can choose how much you study. You can choose all these things. And perhaps they're not there are free choices for you, but you know if you are taught and you modify the environment such that people understand that there are good choices, bad choices, and that it's better to do the good choices. I think that we can change a lot. And we're back. Jail is plenty, and we should improve our jail so that they're not punishments all the time. Right? So yeah. But jails need to be exist because of it deters others and it protects society from someone that is very violent, right? So, uh, but they should be very high quality. They basically should be rooms, right, where the person can be comfortable. I think in Norway or like Finland, their jails look like my apartment. <laughs> Yeah, they have they have good a good setup, TVs and video games. Yeah. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Probably better than our dorm rooms. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Probably, probably better. Yeah. Okay, so question number two. What mm-hmm. have you changed your mind about recently? Could be about anything, like even very trivial things recently I mean I'm constantly changing my mind about things right you know, your thought is constantly evolving and it's slow enough that from one moment to the other you don't exactly realize so one thing that I I grew up in Brazil which is a very very religious country and I grew up um, believing in all kinds of things they have not only they are there's Catholicism that is like the main religion is uh, Catholic and, and Christian, but they also believe in black magic. Um, there is like a bunch of black magic religions called Macumba, Candomblé, uh, which I grew up believing, my family believed, everyone believes. Uh, and I and I remember I was terrified because like they put candles, they, they kill chickens on the street, um, oh. to devil, like to offerings to devil. And you can't touch those things, or you walk on the street and there is a bad chicken with a candle, you go far, far away because you don't want to disturb the spirits. And I grew up believing in these things. And uh, and I remember I was terrified. I was I was I, I remember one time I accidentally touched the candle and I thought I was gonna die. I, I was I really thought I was gonna die. Um, and if, over time, I became an atheist, and that took a long time. It wasn't like day to night. And, and I can't pinpoint exactly when the change happened, 
and you know my views about religion are still evolving you know it's like um you know is it good to have it around is it good for some people even if you don't believe or you know would it be bad would we be better off without it and all these things you know i'm constantly changing how i feel about this for example um you know, I used to believe, I think I mentioned that last time, but I used to believe that the difference between males and females was entirely due to society. Like how we treat girls with pink, boys with blue, and boys are should do dangerous things and girls should not. And, and, and I very much believed in that, that that was what set boys and girls apart. And without that, there would be no difference. Um, and... Uh, that's true over time. In fact, after I had kids, I realized that that doesn't explain it all. It might explain a little bit of the difference, but the vast majority of the difference is actually inborn. And and girls are different than boys. And you can see that when they're young, very young, like when they're two years old, you can already see the differences. Um, so that's another, another aspect that I have changed my mind. Um, and then there's a ton of studies showing that high heritability of some things, correlation with hormones, etc. Right? Um, and, and it's very interesting because people who transition and start taking hormones will see their mentality and behavior changing as a as a direct result of the hormones they're taking. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So uh, all of that is points that there is a heavy biological component in, in the differences we see in sexes. So yeah i mean a lot of these seem like the changes may i mean you said you can't pinpoint it but it seems like they developed as you maybe learn more about biology or like some of the sciences yeah it's yeah it's, it's life experiments i experienced science and all these things um i recently read a book that made me change my views a little bit i mean i I'm a Democrat and I've always been like a, a left wing and I read a book about right and left and why people have, and uh, it talks about the uh, the aspects of morality from people from the right and people from the left. And I realized that uh, it's not like the right wing are bad people and left wing are good people. It's just that they use a slightly different but very overlapping set of values. Um, and, you know, right wing people have things like uh, um, equality for equal work. So they feel that someone should only be paid the same thing if they do the same amount of work. Whereas left wing people, they have a more care. Everyone should get equal treatment no matter what. Um, whereas you, if you see a right-wing person, it's like, oh, we can't give uh, uh, social benefits for this person because he's not working. Whereas a left-wing person thinks, oh, he's not working because maybe he can't or, or not because he's lazy and therefore he deserves the same kind of... But, you know, both sides make some sense when you think of the underlying values that those people put forth. Right. So I think that in the end there is no such a thing as um, a bad person and a and a and a good person. We 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 trivialize differences too much, right? What is like us we say is good. What's unlike us we say is bad. 
but it's really not like that you know it's it's slightly different ways of seeing the world and in the end everybody's more or less equally good um and bad you know and it's the same like if you look at uh i, I always thought that the the right-wing people reject science because they tend to be creationists mm -hmm. uh, and therefore they're rejecting science but it turns out the left-wing people also reject a lot of science. So they reject science, for example, that there is differences between sexes. Uh, they reject um, they reject a number of biological sciences that are, you know, that are that have pretty good data about personality, differences between people, differences between races, and so on. Um, so in the end. People reject the science that doesn't fit their political views. Right. So if my political views is that everybody is the same, therefore male and female are the same, and it's just a consequence of society that males are more sexual than females because we are forcing them with a porn. It's like... <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so in the end, I think that there is... The divide is not like us versus them or, or good and not. I think it's a much more nuanced difference. Yeah, and I think the pressure to to you know believe in everything that your political party believes is very, very real. Like mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. like I'm I'm actually more conservative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um I struggled a lot with the idea of because I'm not I'm also not particularly religious, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you know the idea of like abortion, for example. Right, right. You know, um, I used to say like, oh, I'm somewhere between like Republican and Libertarian, but I'm not. <laughs> and you know, it's like if you want to vote, then they tend to. It's like, do I prioritize one? particular value over everything else like does that become like the main priority so it's i don't know where i stand on it but i can't it's hard to vote for someone who supports it versus doesn't support it but at the same time you know they conflict with everything else and yeah so i think there's a lot of pressure in that sense too and, uh, and there is a lot of pressure i agree that if you're left-wing then you have to say that the police is bad <laughs> Um, and if you're a conservative, then you have to say that, no, they're good. And, and you know, it becomes this, this craziness. And even the coronavirus is becoming... Yeah, oh my goodness. Drives me crazy. I mean, I think we should reopen the economy. But the moment I say that, I'm pro-Trump. It's like, no, I'm not pro-Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, yeah, so I have... I have uh, over my life, I started out, I think when I was young and at college, I was way more left-wing than I am now. And I have come to see that both sides have sense, like both sides have good things and, and, and things that I don't agree with, but you know, people are people. And final question, what's the most interesting or what you personally find interesting discovery in your field in the last few years i think that the most interesting uh has been finding changes in humans that leads to very specific local adaptation so showing that changes are possible even i mean humans are very relatively 
uh, young species, and we have expanded over the planet very, very recently, talking in terms of generations. But we already find that some populations have adaptations for particular conditions of their environment, despite the very short uh, time. So I think that the most fascinating has been the Bajau people in the east coast of Asia. It's a group of uh, ocean nomads. So they don't, they, they live on the ocean and they fish and they can stay 11 minutes underwater. 11 minutes. <laughs> I cannot stay one minute. One minute <laughs> I'm feeling desperate. They can stay 11 minutes. And the men go in the ocean and they fish all kinds of uh, things like octopuses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the men that can stay the longest underwater can have the most children because they, they are the exclusive uh, people that feed their family. Um, oh. And they develop this mutation, which is a very simple mutation. It increases the size of their spleen, uh, and the spleen pumps blood, oxygenated blood, into the into into you, right, into the system when you dive. Uh, they have the spleen three times the size of a normal spleen, three times, uh, and. Uh, it's amazing. It's a single nucleotide change. So it's one position in the whole genome that changed from an A to a T that allowed them to do that. So I think that's absolutely fascinating. And then there are many others, you know, changes that relate to uh, ability to live in high altitudes, ability to survive in a, in a vegetarian diet only, or ability to survive in a marine diet, if you look at the Inuits. in the, So all these small changes that make it make you able to digest this food, showing like how many new adaptations have appeared uh, even in a short-lived species like ours, like in a, in a recent species like ours. Um, and the power of selection, even in humans, right? So the nucleotide change causes like your spleen to grow bigger? Yeah, a single change. Is that the maximum size that the spleen can, like in, the, in those people? It's about three times the size. I think there's a little variation on how big they are. And there is no other human with a bigger spleen. Yeah. So that's the biggest. And, you know, when these people enter in the Olympics and they do, like, diving competitions, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> it's going to be very unfair. Wow. Uh, and if you look like, like, if you look at, like, uh, uh, race speed and all these things, it's not... Some groups are way faster than other groups, right? I think 90% of the speed uh, Olympic uh, medals are held by people of East African ancestry, and they represent a very small group, um, but they are the fastest. So there is all these adaptations that have already um, appeared in our species, even though we're very depleted of genetic diversity if you compare us with chimps. Chimps are more genetically diverse than we are by far. Oh. You know, and people keep making a big fuss about races and not that's nothing. It's like very little uh-huh. <laughs> to other species. <laughs> so uh, you know, but even then, you know, we do see these adaptive changes uh, across populations. Um, what do you think about having genetic changes and like creating like better athletes like for the whole yeah. <laughs> 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 like how 
to the CRISPR baby so they are super athletic. We could do that one change would be really easy to do that yeah. one change. <laughs> that would be so easy. Yeah. I think most people I, I had a, I, I taught yeah I taught the, this evolution class for no majors uh, last year and I had uh, one of the debate groups was about that whether you should allow it or you shouldn't and I <laughs> think that the inequality in access should prevent you from allowing that even if the method was perfect because not everybody would have access to the technology because it would cost money mm-hmm. um, then you should prohibit it. I mean, um, well, that's the case for anything though, right? Right, right, right. High surgeries, all these things, right? But you know, messing up with embryos, I think it's 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 one part that humans are not fully comfortable with because the embryo can't have a say. You know, a person that is already born, if if we could modify the genome of that person so that they would have a bigger spleen, then the individual could decide. (laughs) Why not? Except it's not possible because it relates to development. So you can't do it. You can only do it in an embryo. Yeah. And for example, I mean, this is obviously getting into like moral, quote, quote, morality territory. But, you know, you know, your your embryo, like your baby is going to have like a disease or something. It's interesting because in this case, most people think it's morally acceptable to change. And in fact... We already do that with embryo selection, right? So parents that have, for example, cystic fibrosis um, can have the baby in vitro and throw away the embryos that carry the, the disease oh. and keep the healthy ones. So this is already being done. And then what is the difference from that to actually modifying an embryo so that it doesn't have that? Oh. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, if we really stretch the logic, like really stretch it, right? It's like, you know, if you're, if you're taller, then you have more advantages in life. So, (laughs) you know, you're, you're preventing your child from having advantages in life. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm I'm five feet tall, but you know, if I was like five, seven as a woman, you know, it'd be like much more dominant. (laughs) Now they're finding all kinds of genes related to intelligence and mathematical ability and whatnot, you know, would you be able to modify those or not? And, and, you know, it was interesting to watch the students debating and a lot of the fear is that you're going to get into um, racial territory, like selecting against skin color or something like that. Although there's no reason to think that because why would black parents not want to have a black baby? Why would they want to have a blue-eyed baby, you know? Like... So, so I don't know. I think that this division in the U.S. exacerbates these kinds of fears of eugenics and, and especially towards the racial divide. But mm-hmm. you know, actually, I do see occasionally on Reddit, um, there's uh-huh. a few posts that say like, "Oh, I, I don't want to name." So this is coming from supposedly a black individual, and the mm-hmm. individual says, uh, "I don't want to name my child." Or give my child a quote like a black sounding name because you know it could harm the child's future. Um, so I mean, so you know, help them, you know, it's like nowadays it could well help them. I get, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, it could be like, like you no, know, maybe the 
individual really believes that so they want their child to be white or like have right. a different skin right. color or something yeah yeah but yeah that would be a that would be terrible right but yeah yeah so we're not even close to a point where we can actually safely modify an embryo to have this thing so that's why the the, the twins that were born it was so unethical because you really don't know what you change it. At this point, our CRISPR technology is not safe. Um, so, but assuming that progress will continue to be done, there will be a point where it will be safe. Mm -hmm. So people will have to really decide on what's the best approach. And I think that prohibiting it from happening is just going to lead to underground ways oh, yeah. of parents to be able to do it. So it, it's going to make it even less accessible to the normal individual and only accessible to millionaires who can really spend the money to get their child to be the next Olympic champion. By, <laughs> I do have one more question, though. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm cheating because uh, technically that was supposed to be the last question. But I recently, do you, he's kind of like a celebrity researcher now, but do you know David Sinclair? What does he do? He studies aging, like the genetics of aging. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was listening to his podcast, mm -hmm. and he was talking about how he, you know, how we can, you know, reverse aging or at least, you know, eventually live like to like 150 years old. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I was wondering your thoughts on two things. So first, like the idea of, you know, reverse aging and living up to that long or even living the second thing is the idea of living forever if that's uh -huh, if that's at all possible uh, uh, hey it would be great right if we could <laughs> without the aging part just like <laughs> yeah. forever without the aging part um i don't know if we're gonna get there i mean aging aging is a tricky one like we can't select against aging by having uh, selecting, uh, so in a fruit fly, like in captivity, mm -hmm. you can actually make fruit flies live much longer than their normal. Their normal life is about 20 days. So yeah. usually in 20 days, they die naturally. You provide food, everything, 20 days, they're dead. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, you can make them survive for more than three months by doing a series of selections over several generations. You always select babies of flies who are over 20 days so instead of collecting the eggs laid when they are young you collect the eggs laid when they are very old so you postpone reproduction when you do that over a few generations you actually have flies that live for much longer because basically you are selecting against individuals that did not reach 20. right so imagine if we could because women, female humans have menopause like whales. Whales and humans are the only two. <laughs> um, so uh, we can't do that in humans. But let's say that you could, right? Let's say that only people who had babies after 50s would actually be able to have living babies, like would actually be able to reproduce. Only people that lived more than 50s. Anyone that died before that would be eliminated from the gene pool. Right. So to live that long, 50, you must be free from all kinds of cancer genes that will kill you in your 40s and so on. 
Um, if you extend that to 80s, only people who are 80s can have surviving babies and have babies that actually are raised, then you're gonna eliminate a whole lot of people that never reach 80s. So you can see that by doing that, you're actually eliminating detrimental genes that kill you right. young. Uh-huh. And we're full of these genes because in the past, we didn't live that long. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cancer genes that kill us after reproductive age because, you know, in the past, the average lifespan was 30s. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that killed you when you were 40, that was fine. You already had all the offspring you would oh, in your lifetime. So as you postpone uh, reproduction, you actually are indirectly selecting for to eliminate these detrimental alleles from the gene pool. Hmm. But these detrimental alleles are there. So all supplements you give, all the things, all the treatments, I think they can postpone and prevent some kinds of aging, but they're not going to have everybody live forever because we, each one of us carry these detrimental alleles, right? It's detrimental things. There's a lot of studies going on with centenaries, like they're getting people that survived for more than 100 years, and oh, they're yeah. trying to what's unique about them. What do they lack? And they already found some genes that they lack that others have that, that probably are responsible for longevity. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't have much hopes that in my lifetime, certainly not. I'm, you know, if I live to 100, that's great. <laughs> you know, you know if, if, if we're making people live longer, we have to also decrease uh, birth rates, which is mm -hmm. happening, um, but decreasing birth rates all over the world. So in some places, uh, the population is still growing exponentially, and that needs to come down if uh, if we want to expand longevity equally around the world I, see. So. I think um um to keep you optimistic he said if they really focus on the research like intensely okay. it could be within the next 10 years <laughs> oh, oh, I Not forever, but, you know, living a longer time <laughs> yeah so, well optimistic <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you have 25 years. I'm probably 25 years older than you, so you, <laughs> maybe for you, like that's for me. <laughs> I mean, if you survive, you know, knife point, gun point, I think you have, you know, enough luck. You have luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. I survived. Mm -hmm. All righty. Thank you, Luana, for the conversation and your time. Yeah, you're welcome. That was really fun. And thank you guys for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at eggheads underscore FM. And feel free to email us at crackingeggheads at gmail.com. Thank you.